Broken trust can be healed, but it's not just time that's going to heal it. You need clear guidance about what to do and what not to do. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I've developed a free video course called The First Steps to Rebuilding Trust. This course will show you what's needed to begin healing after betrayal. I offer guidance for the betrayed partner as well as the partner who broke the trust. You can access it for free right now by clicking the link in the show notes. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I want to welcome you to my podcast, From Crisis to Connection. Each week on this podcast, my guests and I will give you and your loved ones resources and tools to heal from the crises of infidelity, pornography, abusive behaviors, and betrayal trauma. But we also talk about how to build and maintain healthy connection in your most important relationships. Thanks for listening. I'm so glad you're here. So one of the things that I get asked a lot as a therapist that works a lot with pornography and sexual addiction issues is how do you know if it's safe to be in a relationship with somebody who either has struggled with this or currently struggles with it? And I get asked, I get asked this a lot, almost from a place of, I'm like, you know, Jeff, pull out your crystal ball and let me know whether or not I'll be safe with this person. And so there's a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety about whether somebody who is dealing with this is a safe person, but also how can you know how serious it is or how do you talk about this? And it just can, it can feel like you're, there's just this giant sort of minefield of uncertainty when you're single and you're trying to pair up with somebody who may or may not have a secret life, you get it. Like there's just a lot of anxiety around this. And so in today's episode, we're going to talk to Dr. Adam Moore and Wendy Markle, who are co-authors of an upcoming book that talks about dating and pornography. And let me introduce you really quickly to both of them because they are producing something that I think will help change the conversation and make these conversations a lot less anxiety provoking and actually help you get some traction and go somewhere with it. So Dr. Adam Moore is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He's the co-owner of Sela Health, a mental health clinic that operates five locations in Utah and Nevada. He's a frequent guest at workshops and podcasts, and he is the host of his own podcast called Pocket Therapist. And he and his wife run their counseling practice together and try to homeschool their five kids. And the operative word there is try. So That is very much the operative <laughs> And Wendy Morkel is a writer, editor, web contributor, and a therapist. And she has a master's degree in English also from... Well, I guess she didn't say where she got it from. Where did you get it from, Wendy? I'm from BYU, from Brigham Young okay. University. Awesome. And resides in Mapleton, Utah. And she's passionate about faith, her marriage, and her family. She's And they are the parents of uh, six children ages 20 to seven. And she loves her friends and loves her pebble ice. And I'm not sure if it's in that order or not, but the pebble ice probably is up there. <laughs> Depends on the day. <laughs> it's way up there. It may be at the very top. So I'm excited to to talk with these guys about this topic. It's something that is on a lot of people's minds, especially just with how easy it is to conceal and hide and people get surprised later in marriage. So the more we can have these conversations early on and often, I think it just creates healthier and stronger relationships. So welcome to the podcast, Adam and Wendy. It's good to be with both of you. Thanks. Thank you. So let's, let's just jump right in, guys. Let's talk about the difference here. I mean, we work with a lot of married couples that are dealing with this, and that's kind of a dynamic in and of itself because it's based on this idea that either there weren't any issues or known issues with pornography, but 
then it comes out, or maybe they knew that there was an issue maybe in the past, but now it's resurfaced. And that that's not the focus of today's podcast, but I'm curious what you see the differences are between dealing with pornography in a dating relationship versus what you see in married couples. Well, just to start off, one big difference is while people are dating, it's really common, especially when they start to get really close to be very infatuated with each other. And it'll Mm. feel like true love. And during that stage, everything feels wonderful. The dopamine is just flying. And at the same time, you're experiencing something that John Gottman likes to call positive sentiment override, Mm -hmm. which means that you're you've got a little bit of input about this person because you spent a limited amount of time together and you're filling in all the blanks with just really good stuff. And you actually it's hard to know what actually is in the blanks there. And so Mm -hmm. it's really easy for a lot of couples to overlook pornography if it's important to them and important to avoid it in marriage. They often don't have those conversations because of this infatuation, because they're they're so enamored with each other that they think that maybe they're there are no problems on the on the horizon. And so that's why it's really important to be intentional about having conversations and having conversations in the right way about pornography, if it's important to a couple. I love that. And it makes me, you know, when you talk about positive sentiment override, I think why not take advantage of all those good feels and use it as a chance to talk about difficult things, right? And like have some insulation there. That's, That's great. Yeah. The other thing that's really interesting, when you look at the studies on women's perceptions of their partner's porn use, being married is a predictor of how much distress or how important it becomes to them. And so a lot of people, when they're dating, like Wendy said, maybe they just assume everything is fine or will be fine. Their love will conquer all things or whatever it is. But there's also the stakes get a lot higher when you get married. You suddenly Mm -hmm. have, you're tied up financially. You have often have children together. Each decision that you make profoundly influences the day-to-day of the other person. And so then to be in a married relationship and know that, okay, this thing that we thought we could brush, you know, under the rug or, you know, just kind of not worry about is now really featuring in our day-to-day conversations. Or like you said earlier, worse, I thought I didn't think it was featuring in our life, but now I'm discovering that this has been hidden from me and I'm months or years into the relationship. I'm finding out that I'm having to deal with this. I think if you look at our therapy clients in our office, a lot of premarital couples will come in for a few sessions, Mm -hmm. pre-marriage and they'll say, Hey, you know, he's had a porn problem and we're just trying to make sure we're kind of on top of it. After a few appointments, they'll usually they'll go, okay, we we've, I think we got this figured out. And then a few months (laughs) after marriage or six months later, they're coming in and it's suddenly a much bigger deal. So our take on this is, and not just with pornography, but any topic where there's a lot of intense emotion, where there's a lot of values wrapped up in it, Anything pre-marriage should be talked about and at least start the dialogue because it's not going to go away and it will get a lot more serious later on. Yeah. 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 And I'd love to add that 
that study that Adam just referenced is about uh, marriage being a predictor of distress. That's actually, it was a pretty groundbreaking study in its time in back in 2006, because it was a study that looked at the experiences of women who have discovered a partner's pornography use. And what the researchers found was that women were experiencing symptoms similar to post-traumatic stress disorder, similar to what people who've engaged in combat or been in a horrific car accident experience, like the the hypervigilance and the depression and anxiety symptoms that are very similar that show, hey, there's been a real trauma here. And what the researchers found was that the common factor among the women that were experiencing this trauma was discovering mm-hmm. a partner's porn use after they were married. And so that's why it's vital to have those conversations if you can before you get married. So yes. you can circumvent that trauma. Right. Because emotional. because what I've seen with the couples that I've worked with that are premarital, dating, engaged, when they're talking about the pornography. In fact, I just had a couple on my podcast recently who he was super transparent with her when they were dating. And so she's never had discovery trauma with him ever. But they're working through a re- he's working through a recovery process together, but she's not having to overcome that hurdle of does this guy want to manipulate me and keep me in the dark? And it's interesting because as much as she doesn't, you know, love the fact that he struggles with this in terms of their relationship, there's a lot more security there about what she means to him and feeling respected and, and the trust is, is way higher because there's that openness. So I agree with you that if you can, if you can handle the discovery part prior, then I think it does set the couple up for a lot more success. Definitely. Yeah. Well said. Any other differences that you see with you know, dealing with pornography issues in in a dating relationship versus marriage? I think sometimes the, so if we're talking about guys with porn issues, which is, uh, you know, by far the, the largest sort of segment of the population that's coming in clinically to our therapy office, you know, guys with a porn issue and they're dating some, someone and they're, you know, looking to get married, you know, the women often don't know what their role is supposed to be, you know, that's a common question. Yeah. Like, how am I supposed to handle this? You know, what's my responsibility? What should I not be in charge of, et cetera? I think married women will often take a much more proactive stance on things because they're like, oh, well, no, we're tied up now. I mean, let's, let's get going. I, I'm not waiting around for trying to solve problems here, but in the dating relationship, it's a little more tentative. In fact, Wendy's interviews with couples that uh, ended up in the book who struggled with this pre and post marriage, there was at least one in there where she was like, I didn't know it was okay to ask for more detail. He just kind of said, here's, you know, I guess I have a history of porn use. And she went, okay, well, let me know if it's a problem or whatever. And uh, I think knowing what the permissions are, what's okay in a committed relationship pre-marriage that's a real challenge. And that needs to be a a dialogue between them. And I think that women need to be empowered to be able to ask more questions rather than feeling like this is his private stuff. If you're serious enough to talk about pornography, you're probably serious enough to get married, which means you might as well get prepped to be heavily involved in each other's stuff early. Yeah. It reminds me years and years ago, I worked with a family where the father was 
he, he came in and was like, I want to be able to interview my daughter's, you know, fiancés or boyfriends about pornography because I almost want to screen them for my daughters. And I hadn't really thought through it very well. This was a long time ago and I hadn't thought through it very well. And I thought, oh, you know, I mean, that's, it felt very traditional, but I was like, okay. But as I look back on it now, and he actually did do this and talk to the guys and tried to smoke it out or whatever. But what, I, but what I've realized since then is that it really did not equip these women for how to talk to their own husbands about this issue before or after their marriage. And that to me is a huge liability for their own intimacy and connection. It's almost like dad screens them. They, they pass through kind of the emotional TSA, <laughs> you know, metal detector type thing. And then they get on the plane and go off and live happily ever after. But it's just not like that. This is an ongoing dialogue and discussion that women need to know and men need to know how to be able to talk about. Yeah, definitely. And I like that you brought up that term screening because that's another important thing we found in those interviews that we did was that women who took this approach of, hey, on the first date, I just ask like, all about all my, all my deal breakers. Oh, point they, blank. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, do you <laughs> have a date. problem with porn <laughs> on the first date? Usually that's where it becomes problematic, where either there is lying and we can talk more about lying or where it doesn't result in a second date because they're just not ready at that point. So that, that whole approach of it's not screening, it's, you need to have, be having like compassionate human conversations about this, not just going through a checklist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no kidding. Boy, I'm just trying to think, you know, I mean, when I was going on first dates, I've been married 25 years. These were not coming up, obviously, back in the early right. nine, mid nineties. But like, I'm just thinking about myself as a single person. That would have been so jarring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have somebody believe that they had a right to something that private on the first date when I, the only question I have is like, well, how did you like your meal? You know, that's right. like, those are the kind of questions I'm interested in on a first date. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like what's your favorite band or whatever? Maybe. Right. <laughs> exactly. So, and it's not to minimize the importance of a question like that, but you're right, Gwendy. I mean, I think it has to be to me, the trust, especially at that level, it's not like that person has something to prove to the other, per- like, you know, it's not a, it's coming from an assumption that, that, in, you know, maybe in, in the, the, the male female dynamic we've been talking about that, like somehow he owes her that information because he's a guy and she's right. the one that's going to be on the, you know, she's the vulnerable one, but it's like, well, he could have some pretty serious questions for her too. Right. You know, if we really want to go there, you know, it's just, <laughs> it's just so yeah. disrespectful, I think to like make those assumptions right out the gate. Yeah, yeah definitely. So I'm surprised people aren't getting second dates after that. So got to slow that down big time. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about how do you bring this up? I mean, when, you know, when is the right time? How soon is too soon? How do you bring it up? I mean, this is probably one of the biggest things that, you know, I get asked a lot as well. Should I, you know, in in the case of my example, you know, should I just have my dad do it? (laughs) 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 So what would you guys say? Yeah. I, you know, obviously we sp- actually in the book, we specifically say, please, please don't ask us on the first date. <laughs> uh, just to, just to be clear with people, to me, you have to be in a relational position to where you have built enough trust mm-hmm. that this type of thing even makes sense to ask. It's very, you know, it's the same thing as saying, 
hey, do you have a history of having an eating disorder? Or, you know, are you a kleptomaniac or anything like that? Like, if you're going to ask someone that serious, you better have demonstrated that you're a trustworthy person and have earned the right to hear the response to that. Otherwise, number one, it's not really appropriate. And number two, you're not going to get an honest answer. So trust needs to be there. And I think a commitment level, that's why we generally recommend that people are asking or talking about anything serious, including pornography, when the relationship has started to evolve into one in which both people are starting to make longer term commitment gestures toward each other. Mm -hmm. They're talking about the possibility of marriage. They're, you know, they're dating exclusively and they're talking about other serious things. So, you know, all of that needs to be in place before you can expect that a person would open up about something that serious to you in a relationship. Because, you know, a lot of these people, this is the first person that they've ever told. Some of them, their parents are aware. Some of them, they've got, you know, a few other people in their lives, but sometimes they'll get into a relationship. This is legitimately the first person that knows they've struggled with porn. So to assume that you deserve that access to that information when not not this person's parents don't even know is, you know, it's quite an assumption. So you have to commit, you have to be ready to hear whatever the answer is and not just treat it like, you know, this is a college course to weed out people that don't really want to take this major seriously or whatever. Yeah. Anything you want to add, Wendy? Yeah, I would add, uh, oh, I have a lot to add, but just on top of that, I would say that like Adam just said, be ready to hear whatever the answer is. That's another thing that we encountered is that certain people just want to expect that they want to hear a particular answer, whether it's, and it could be anything from, oh, I've never, I really haven't had any experience with porn to, you know what? Yeah, I'm an addict and I want to get in recovery right now. But approaching this conversation as, oh, I need this specific answer from that person, that's opening up. It's just opening opening up a big space for disappointment and for not allowing this other person, their autonomy to have had the experiences that they've had and to be on the path they're on. Wow. Yeah. I love that. Well, and it's also to assume that it's a pass fail kind of thing. Yeah. Because I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, we've all seen examples of people that might check the box of I've never looked at porn, but are really unhealthy in a lot of other ways. And so that's, and, but I've also seen people that have struggled with pornography and to me are people that I would totally, you know, feel comfortable recommending that they date someone I care about, you know, who really have done some deep digging and have maybe a more nuanced or complex sort of life or whatever, but they're just deep in a process and they're, they have deep integrity and there's just a lot of other pieces. So to have sort of a yes or no question around this to me becomes very one dimensional and limits our ability to connect with somebody and understand their whole story and who they are. And I think that to limit someone just to that is, feels very premature to me. Yeah, I yeah. agree. I love that. And I think it's important. And Wendy can talk a little bit about in a minute here about the research on maximizing the likelihood that you get an honest answer, because that's usually the biggest worry that people have is, yeah, okay, I, sure. can, I can ask the questions, but how do I know this person isn't just going to snow me? They're not just going to say, oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. You know, here's the, 
Yeah, I used to. I mean, the most common thing I hear is I used to struggle with it, but it's not, you know, not a big deal anymore. And sometimes they mean used to like two weeks ago or, you know, three days ago. But, right. you know, they're they're trying to preserve the relationship. And that's the thing that you have to understand about the vast majority of people are not going out of their way to pull the wool over people's eyes. They're trying to preserve something that they care about. They're having anxiety about preserving this relationship that is developing. And this is their biggest secret or whatever. So they're worried about how it's going to affect people. So one thing that's really crucial is to separate this out into two conversations. And one of them is about 23 seconds long and the other <laughs> one's a lot longer. But essentially you have this warm-up conversation in which you say, hey, honesty is really important to me and pornography is really important to me. And not at this exact minute, but I would like to talk with you about this. And I want to give you some time to process and think about what you want to say. So maybe in a couple of days, let's talk about this. And it's more important that you tell me the truth than it is that you appear to be squeaky clean and with no problems or whatever. And there's actually quite a bit of research that says that having a little warm up prep talk will make all the difference in the outcome of the real deep multi, sometimes multi-hour and multiple conversations. I love that uh, so much. Coming up. Yeah, I love that so much because I think sometimes the fear is like, well, if I don't ambush them and get an authentic response in the moment, then they'll have time to just build up a case and totally snow me over big time. But I think it's the opposite. Yes, it it is the opposite. And that was something that was really interesting to us when we did the research for this book was, yeah, you would think, hey, yeah, if I if I catch someone off guard, I'm more likely to get the real story, just like you said. But like Adam said, people in general want to be honest. And the reason that people lie is often because they're caught off guard, because they don't have an opportunity to think through, hey, who do I really want to show up as? What kind of person do I want to be for this conversation? And it's just a knee-jerk response. We actually, there's this great study about college students who were each given a die, like dice to roll in a cup and they rolled the dice and they could see through this little hole in the cup, what number they had rolled and they were supposed to report it to the researchers. But before they, before they reported it, they were told, okay, so whatever number you roll is what you're paid for this study. So if you roll a six, you get 60 bucks. If you roll a one, you get $10. So people are incentivized to want to roll a higher number. And what they found was if in one group, they gave people eight seconds to disclose their number after seeing what they rolled. And so they're told what the, the rules of the study, roll the dice immediately, eight seconds to report your number. And there was a lot of lying. And then they gave another group unlimited time to report their number. And there was no lying detected in that group. Wow. Because those people were given the option, hey, think about, do you want the money or do you want to be an honest person? And when you have time to process that, people choose to be more honest. When you have time to sort of engage your conscience and your values and your integrity will will fall on the side of honesty. That is fascinating. Is that interesting? Well, that matches my own experience. You know, when I'm caught off guard, I, you know, it's so reflexive to want to look good or, yeah. or not lose something important or it's human nature. And so to really slow this down is wise. Brilliant. I love it, guys. So that's that in terms of 
the conversation, like you said, Adam, it's, it's really need to be at least at a minimum, two conversations, possibly more. Almost guaranteed more. It's basically, this is an introductory conversation to really to every important dialogue that's going to happen across the course of hopefully a very long and successful relationship. And that is we value honesty over looking good. We give each other time to process and we take everything that matters seriously. And we, we carefully think about it and we give each other space to be who we are. And we also stand up for what's important to us. And that's, that's another part of the book that I think is a really crucial conceptual piece, which is, you know, we, again, we want to empower these women who are having these conversations and we want to empower the guys too to be able to stand up for, for themselves and say, this is important. I'm not going to lie. I'm going to tell the truth, but we want to empower women in relationships to not be afraid to ask the difficult questions and to say, this is a big deal to me. And you're a big deal to me. And let's make this a big deal together. And team up against it instead of I'm interrogating you to find out whether you're good enough to be in my life. So respectful, so mature, like so effective. And what a great foundation for other long-term conversations that they'll inevitably, you know, encounter working together as a couple. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. A lot of the, I know John, John Van Epp, who wrote that great book, how to avoid marrying a jerk. He taught, I remember hearing him speak years ago in Atlanta and he, and he said, he was, when I first wrote this book, for, you know, how to pick a partner. He goes, I, I really, in my mind was thinking of like college students, you know, kids that are kind of in the dating age engagement. He's like, but but what's interesting is like the bulk of my audience were people that were divorced and like looking to remarry because they were the ones that cared so deeply about not going through that again, where the other ones, they really weren't the customer. They, they really thought love would conquer all. They were they were just naive and and sort of bright eyed and just hoping for the fu- a great future. But he said the people that had been burned, that had experienced loss and betrayal, and and they were the ones asking better questions. They were the ones who wanted a method, a way to understand this, how to come back into it safely. And I think that's probably the case. I see that in my practice all the time with people that are really asking these kinds of questions, or maybe even coming into it really aggressively are the ones that have already been burned by it, either in a marriage or a previous romantic relationship. And they're, or a parent, you know, they came out of a family with it and they've had some experience with it where they're just like, this isn't just based on like some sort of unknown fear. It's based on an actual front row seat to getting put through something really hard. So what would you guys say to that? As far as, you know, someone who's already been through this, how do they slow it down so that they don't come in really making a bunch of assumptions or projecting all their fears onto this relationship. Yeah, I um we actually the couples that we interviewed, we interviewed individuals, we interviewed couples, we interviewed couples who had already broken up, couples who were still trying to make it work and we actually a bulk of the people we interviewed were people who had already experienced either a relationship or a marriage with someone who had uh, compulsively used pornography. And so, yeah, they were definitely, we saw more vigilance there. And yeah, we saw that these, a lot from the women who'd already experienced these relationships, they were often a lot more cautious, sometimes to the point of kind of what we were talking about before, not the overly infatuated, so missing things, but so vigilant that they 
or maybe asking on the first date or maybe refusing to have a relationship with anyone who had had any experience with pornography at some point. And yeah, that's a pretty difficult question because if you've had had a pretty traumatic relationship and you're associating that with pornography, yeah, definitely you're not going to want to just head back in there. And I don't think that I would blame a person, you know, for if you've been through something difficult and you're, you're trying to protect yourself, that's, you know, both pretty wise and, and also can be potentially problematic if you're being so vigilant that you aren't allowing compassion for another person. And I I think, you know, the data points to the fact that there is a strong link between in what are called higher order marriages, second, third, fourth marriages, the link between marital distress and depression is much more powerful than it is in first marriages. There's this sense of, oh no, it's happening again. And I promised myself I would never let this happen to me again. And so people get really extra reactive in terms of how they feel and how they act. So, you know, Jeff, you're fond of saying, slow it down. That is a, a very Jeff phrase. And I think that is absolutely the right thing here. Slow mm-hmm. everything down, over communicate what you're thinking, what you're feeling, your fears. A lot of times just talking about the feelings, naming yeah. the emotion, as it's been said, name it to tame it, right? That's right. Uh, naming the emotion actually uh, reduces the impact of the emotion. And in a relational context, if you say, I'm afraid because of this, and this is what it looks like, as long as the other person isn't being reactive, how dare you compare me to your ex-spouse or whatever, which you know often happens then that reduces the likelihood that it will spiral out of control because it's being dialogued instead of a secret spiraling emotional, you know, chaotic thing that's happening on the back end. Yeah, so true. And, and I, I think one thing that I've just observed over and over and over again is that if you're sharing your fears and worries and concerns, like you're talking about, Wendy, with somebody who really has done some good recovery work and is, is emotionally self-aware and is deeply accountable for their own behavior and how it's impacted themselves and others around them, they'll be able to hang in this conversation for quite a while. And you will have probably a corrective emotional experience with them in terms of just feeling seen and understood and heard versus somebody who's had a very shallow or immature or incomplete recovery and gets defensive or wants to change the subject or is blaming you now or thinks that you're just paranoid. I've talked with women who have dated or met men that have done really solid recovery. And they're often surprised at how respectful and patient and mature and open and transparent they are about their process and giving her space for hers. And like you said, Adam, those, those long conversations can actually produce something that would never have happened had they both avoided the subject or she just had written off, you know, because he'd had a previous history with it. There's a lot of untapped potential there. I think if if somebody's really done good work, you almost want to give them a chance to show that they have. Right. 100%. Yeah, Definitely. that's so cool. So what kind of questions? I mean, you know, I'm thinking about people trying to have these conversations and you could go everywhere from the polygraph and the full disclosure <laughs> experience, you know, which is definitely more appropriate for a married couple where there's been a massive <laughs> breach of trust. Versus somebody who doesn't really have, you know, there's no, there's been no commitment in place. There's no trust to rebuild. So how far do you take it? What kind of questions do you ask? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Yeah. Yeah, You don't definitely do not want to go the polygraph route. 
this conversation should not look like an interrogation. This should look like a conversation between two people that really care about each other. And it can be very, you're talking about something that's extremely intimate. So yeah, there definitely, it should be a trust building conversation at this stage in your relationship. And regarding questions to ask, one thing that's really important is to, if you're a person doing the asking, to also be forthcoming and open and vulnerable. And Mm. I don't know what that looks like because that varies from person to person, from woman to woman, but also being forthcoming about, hey, these are my experiences as well. Not just, then it seems a little bit less like an interrogation in that situation. But yeah, the questions to ask, it's important to to just get a history in terms of asking, hey, maybe when is the first time you were exposed to pornography? How often did you use it? How much do you use it now? But at the same time, some really vital questions to explore are maybe what are you getting from it? What does it do for you? What do you tell yourself to keep using? pornography, because if you find that there is some pornography use in order to get to a place where there isn't, you're, you're going to need to explore what's, what's driving this. And so that's something that couples can definitely do in this conversation. And like Adam said, it may not be just a one-off conversation. Yeah. I love that. Guaranteed. Yeah. And real quick, Wendy, just to follow up on something you said at the beginning, Mm -hmm. I, what I kept thinking of is you know, the person who's asking the questions and trying to learn more about, you know, this person's history and experience with it. I'm just sort of struck with this sort of image of like, they are really a guest in that person's emotional house, right? Mm -hmm. They really need to tread lightly and be respectful and careful, you know, and not make a bunch of assumptions that they're going to come in and like, totally like, just clear the place and make sure they, you know, it's, it's not their house. And they need to, if they have questions, they can ask, oh, it's in that cupboard. You know I mean? They can, they can be respectful, but they recognize that they ultimately can just walk out of there if they need to. Yeah. Nobody's keeping them there, but they yeah. need to be respectful and, and compassionate. Yeah, I love that guest in their emotional house. That is a brilliant way to put it. Adam, what were you going to say? There's, uh, you know, of course, part of this conversation is there's always some anxiety, like you were saying in the very beginning. How do I know if this person is going to take this seriously? and do their work and get better, or as if this is going to be something that just kind of keeps repeating itself throughout the rest of my life. And so, of course, there's some anxiety about, you know, is there, are there red flags I can pinpoint that would indicate that this is a bad idea to proceed? And there's no way to predict how people are going to be. Human beings change so dramatically over the course of their lives that you can't say, oh, you're this way, so therefore you will, this is your trajectory. But I would say, you know, I, I would be concerned about people who don't want to talk about it, who try to blame, who try to avoid the subject, who have a lot of excuses instead of just taking ownership and accountability. That's a concern. It's an immature way of doing things. If you're marrying someone or dating someone who's early 20s, you know, don't, don't expect the maturity of a 50 or 60 year old. But I want to look at it as, you know, potential sign of is this person capable of maturely opening up about what's going on and taking accountability. I also would like to know what their history of attempts to solve the problem are. Have they tried to stop? Have they ta- how seriously have they taken it? You know, you get people anywhere from, well, I just keep promising not to do it again and hoping it doesn't happen, all the way to, man, I've been attending 12-step groups, I've done therapy, I've got five people I'm accountable to. 
you know, I, I just want to see what their commitment level has been. And then I would be really interested to know what they're willing to do, what they're willing to sacrifice, what changes they're willing to make to keep it out of their lives in the future. And how willing are they to continue to have a dialogue with me? Somebody that's willing to do work, willing to keep talking about it. That makes me feel comfortable versus the person that's like, no, 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 it's in the past. And I don't want talking about it makes me upset. I'd rather just move on to a different subject. That makes me concerned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would that. say that like what that points to is whether or not your values are in alignment. That's something that's really important that these conversations hopefully should uncover is, is this something that is important to both of us or is it only important to me? Because before marriage, that's a big thing to look at because if you share values and interests, your relationship is likely to go much better. Your relationship, the research has shown, will last longer than if you don't share values with Mm -hmm. your partner. And one thing that surprised us that we found from the interviews we did was half of the couples we talked to, it was actually the guy that brought up the conversation about pornography, Hmm. where he said, he said, Hey, I need to tell you something. And then disclosed, I've actually been having a problem with pornography for X amount of time, or I don't know how to get over it. And that is a pretty good sign because it shows with these couples, the ones we found where the guy brought it up first, not all of those couples stayed together, but a lot more of them stayed together than the ones where the guy just hit it until the woman could pull it out of him or discovered it in some way. And so, but then at the same time, a lot of those couples where the guy was really brave and disclosed. And a lot of times he, like Adam had mentioned earlier, had never told anyone before, but so this relationship was important to him. And you could tell he really, this was important to him that he not be using pornography. But even in those situations, a lot of times those couples didn't have the conversations they, they needed to before marriage in order to find some sort of recovery. There was a lot of assumptions that the conversation itself would solve the problem that, okay, we've talked about it now. Okay. It's out in the open. There's been this big confession. And now when we're married and sexually active, everything's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. And so it's very like intimacy building, but at the same time, it they would find these are couples that found problems down the road in their marriages all the same. Man, I love the work you guys are doing on this. And there's obviously so much we can talk about with it. I'm sure people listening are like, like, give me all the questions. Like, let me walk me through the whole process, right? But that's why you guys wrote the book. And I know that this has been a labor of love. You've been working on it for a long time and, and researching and making sure it has everything it needs. What can you tell uh, my listeners about the book and, and where they can get it and when it'll be available? Well, <laughs> it is, uh, if all goes well, assuming nothing terrible happens, April of 2022, it will be released. We'll probably be doing pre-release. People can, you know, follow. Uh, I'm on my Instagram, which you can put in your notes. Yeah, and I'll be posting information about okay. that there. There's a they can get on an email newsletter list if they want to find out. But it really it's a it's an extensive book. It's close to 300 pages, and it covers everything from why this matters, the risk factors that the pornography can, you know, the, the risks it can in, 
and Kerr into the relationship, how to have the conversation, the questions. And then the latter half of the book really is about what couples can do together to team up against a history of pornography use, a potential, you know, an active problem so that they're not fighting against each other and some very specific things that they can do even before marriage and especially before marriage that will get them on the right track without it turning into a parent-child relationship, which is what we're trying to avoid at all costs. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And that's so common once there's this issue that a lot of the times that that's an unfortunate dynamic that's hard to break out of. So that's awesome. So I'll put links to that in the show notes so people know how to access it. Do you guys have a title for it yet? Yeah. So it's called Pumpkins at Midnight, A Woman's Guide to Love, Dating, and Marriage in the Age of Porn. I love it. Very catchy. The Pumpkins at Midnight, of course, is a reference to Cinderella. (laughs) (laughs) Well, guys, thank you so much for the work you're doing and and, uh, just your willingness to come on here and and educate us about this process. And uh, I look forward to, you know, to reading it myself, but also uh, sharing it with my audience. So sure appreciate both of you so much. Well, thank Thank you. you. We appreciate having this conversation. This has been great. If you want to learn more about this book that they are writing and be alerted when it will be available, then check the show notes and you can find ways to connect with them. Thank you once again, Adam and Wendy, for the great conversation around such a challenging topic. I love how you guys are working to reduce fear and increase confidence in people's ability to talk about these things in the dating relationship. And as always, I want to thank all of you for being here every single week. I love talking with you guys. I love bringing these guests on. I love connecting with you and creating this community. There are so many great resources out there. And of course, if you want to connect with me more, you can find my work on my website, fromcrisis2connection.com. You can also follow me on social media. I've got past episodes of the podcast. I've got a weekly relationship column. I feature all of this stuff on all my channels and would love to help support you wherever you are on that continuum from crisis to connection. Thanks again, and I'll catch you guys in the next episode.